This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm so delighted you're here. Today, we're going to be talking about confronting the stigma or the prejudice against mental illness. And really what I think the topic is, is vulnerability, admitting and revealing vulnerability or understanding vulnerability and acceptance of that in our society. You know, 20% of Americans will have some form of mental illness during the year. Not always severe, mind you, but some form of it. And I'm so lucky to have listeners that are not living in the United States, but many countries have prevalences similar to the United States, but some less and some more. However, with that large a number, I imagine more of you actually have some kind of experience with mental illness because you've tuned into a mental health podcast. So it's a little mind-boggling to think, why haven't we done a better job of addressing the prejudice in our culture against mental illness? We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, we're going to talk about how stigma gets expressed in our culture. We're going to focus on the difficulty of chronic mental illness that actually, in my opinion, has more stigma attached to it. I'm going to give you some quotes from people who I think you'll find interesting who have confronted their depression or speaking out on mental health. I'm going to give you my theory about why I think stigma exists. It actually exists for many reasons. I'm just going to add my own layer to that understanding. And lastly, we're going to get an email from a listener about how to talk to your family about being in counseling or depression. I'm so delighted to be getting questions from listeners now. That makes me very pleased. So that's our topic for today. So how does stigma get expressed in our culture? I actually have divided it into two different ways, commission and omission. Commission meaning simply that we commit prejudice. We actively do something, say something, that expresses our disdain or what may be really ignorance about mental illness. When you hear things like, there's no such thing as mental illness, they're all just whiners, or attitudes about medication that say they're not needed and people who take them are weak. They still use the words crazy or insane. Another interesting phenomenon in our culture is the dumbing down of diagnoses such as bipolar or OCD. How many times have you heard somebody say, I'm just having an OCD moment? Well, they're probably really not having a true OCD moment. And bipolar has also had the same usage lately. It's just been something in our culture that you hear someone say, oh, I think I'm just bipolar. Meaning what they're really talking about is they're just having, they're just moody. But bipolar illness, I assure you, is much more than moodiness. The other thing that's interesting is that we whisper about people having nervous breakdowns. Well, that's an old term that keeps it fairly mysterious. What does that mean, a nervous breakdown? We all, when under enough stress or genetically predisposed to our minds being overwhelmed, our emotions getting out of control, we all could succumb to that with enough stress. Now let's talk a little bit about the expression of stigma by omission. What I mean is that you omit behaviors. 
You omit communication about mental illness or mental health issues. You look over things. You ignore things. For example, if someone is hospitalized for depression, people don't go see them. There are no flowers. People don't send them get well cards. It's all hush-hush. When they come back to the office, they don't say, well, tell me about your treatment. What happened? Well, if someone goes away for cancer treatment, we want to know all about the medication and the drugs and the procedures. We don't do that with mental illness as if there's something wrong or weak about seeking treatment. My observation has been that when mental health problems are chronic, that the stigma or the prejudice increases. People can more easily understand a mental reaction like anxiety or depression to a loss or a change. People move to a new home, for example, and perhaps one or both get very anxious. Oh, well, you've just moved into your new house. You've just had a new baby. We understand if someone gets depressed after a trauma, like a a rape, a divorce, a death. We're more comfortable with the idea that it's going to take that person some time to get better. But when someone has more chronic mental illness, we don't do as a culture so well with that. When I talk more about what I think is underneath that, we'll understand it more. But just as a clue, I think it's fear. Now, I wanted you to hear the voices of people who are talking about their mental health issues. Some of them chronic, some of them more acute. Maybe you're one of these people, or maybe it will help you understand someone that you really love who struggles with mental illness. Just briefly, let's talk about the symptoms of depression that these people are talking about, because I did pick people who were talking mostly about depression. There's mild and moderate depression that has more problems with self-esteem, isolativeness, negative thinking, lack of energy at times, but doesn't include some of the more serious symptoms of major depression like hopelessness, helplessness, suicidal ideation. Again, it's on a continuum, so it's hard to say exactly where one begins and the other ends, but certainly suicidal ideation belongs in the realm of major depression. What does depression feel like to the person who has it, especially chronic depression? Andrew Solomon says, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. You can fear losing your engagement with life. You work through one episode of depression, you're feeling good, you're enjoying your life, you're engaged, you're productive, you're enjoying your kids, and then here comes another round of depression, maybe two or three or four years later. I did talk about loving someone with recurrent depression in a previous episode, so you might want to go look at that if that's your particular situation. But having it, sometimes you don't know the triggers And it can feel very overwhelming that all of a sudden you're engulfed in another round of sadness, agitation, emptiness, despair even. Here are some voices of depression. Jay Guillermo, for example, was a college athlete, a football player at Clemson. And they were actually two years in a row now. They've played Alabama for the national title. This year they won. Last year they lost. But there was a big story about Jay Guillermo, who was one of their huge offensive linemen, 300-pound guy, and he wanted to kill himself for months. He also handled that by heavy alcohol use, so that was part of the problem, but the depression was right in there. And this is what Jay Guillermo says. To me at the time, and now I don't think this way, suicidal thoughts were almost calming. It's weird. I don't really know how to describe it. 
It's something that made so much sense then. That's what depression does. It makes you think crazy thoughts and things that are insane become rational, and they're not. In our focus on this discussion about stigma, you can understand how even the person who is feeling these feelings has some prejudice against them. This doesn't make any sense. This isn't me. This isn't my mind. What's happening? And yet, it's the course of the illness. Guillermo continues, It's almost been like a therapy for me to come out and talk about it. There's no miracle cure for depression. You don't wake up one morning and say, Yep, I feel great. You can feel fine for months at a time and then feel depressed again and fall into that trap. It's an ongoing battle. I thought this was fascinating from someone who then went on to play in the Clemson game against Alabama. I don't know if he was part of the team this year. I think he was a senior last year. Then last fall, Kid Cuddy, who is a famous musician, rapper, I believe, put these words on his Facebook page. It's been difficult for me to find the words to what I'm about to share with you because I feel ashamed, ashamed to be a leader and hero to so many while admitting I've been living a lie. It took me a while to get to this place of commitment, but it's something I have to do for myself, my family, my best friend slash daughter, and all of you, my fans. Yesterday, I checked myself into rehab for depression and suicidal urges. The reason why I chose this particular quote and this particular guy was because of his openness about his shame. Again, it's as if he has absorbed our cultural prejudice against what's going on with him and feels ashamed that he would have something that he was dealing with that he had kept hidden from people, and yet many, many people do. It's very difficult to come out and admit, gosh, I have feelings that I've never talked to anybody about, and they're dark, dark feelings. I talk about my theory about hidden depression in episodes three and four. I call it perfectly hidden depression, and you might be interested in listening to those as well. Okay, so that's enough for the advertisement for perfectly hidden depression. Carrie Washington, in an interview on seeing a therapist with Glamour magazine, said, I say that publicly because I think it's really important to take the stigma away from mental health. My brain and my heart are really important to me. I don't know why I wouldn't seek help to have those things be as healthy as my teeth. I go to the dentist. So why wouldn't I go to a shrink? (laughs) I love that term. (laughs) I hope that this attitude is becoming more common here in our culture and in other cultures where therapy is seen as something that is preventative and maintaining good mental health, rather than necessarily anyone waiting until they have a terrible problem. If more of us did that or considered that at least as an option, perhaps there wouldn't be so much prejudice against it. Now, this was a quote that really pulled at my heart. Many of you listening may not be old enough to remember Princess Diana. She was married to Prince Charles for many years. It would appear fairly unhappily. But she was interviewed now... This is more than 20 years ago. And I'm not going to try in my Arkansas-ness to do a British accent because you would not want to listen to that. I was unwell with postnatal depression, which no one ever discusses. And that in itself was a bit of a difficult time. You'd wake up in the morning feeling you didn't want to get out of bed. You felt misunderstood and just very, very low in yourself. Maybe I was the first person ever to be in this family who ever had depression was ever openly tearful. And obviously, that was daunting, because if you've never seen it before, how do you support it? It gave everybody a wonderful new label. Diana's unstable. 
and Diane is mentally unbalanced. And unfortunately, that seems to have stuck on and off over the years. When no one listens to you or you feel no one's listening to you, all sorts of things start to happen. For instance, you have so much pain inside yourself that you try and hurt yourself on the outside because you want help, but it's the wrong help you're asking for. Diana seems to be talking here about self-destructive behaviors. She certainly was very thin, and I believe it was known that she had an eating disorder. She may be referencing something else. But you can see how if someone had reached out to her to try to understand, to say, you're not crazy, what you're feeling is postpartum depression, she could have been helped. She later, of course, she went on to become a very beloved figure in the United Kingdom, and the entire world grieved when she died far too soon. It's fascinating to me that now her son, Prince William, I believe he's the Duke of Cambridge, has become interested in mental health, he and both his wife Kate and his brother. He says, I got interested in mental health for another reason, one that was related to my work as an air ambulance pilot. It was suicide, a subject that is so often hidden. The suicide rate among young men in this country is an appalling stain on our society. Suicide is the biggest killer of men under 40 in this country, and he's speaking of Great Britain. Not cancer, not knife crime, not road deaths, suicide. If one of these other issues took so many young lives, there would be a national outcry. But there has only ever been silence, and this has to stop. This silence is killing good people. I couldn't agree with him more. I would imagine that he has a very soft place in his heart for mental illness, as he may have been able to know himself or certainly have learned later that his own mother suffered so much. The rates of suicide are increasing worldwide in our culture, and it is obviously directly attached to the prejudice against mental illness. People feel that they can't come forward and seek help, and that, I agree with Prince William, has to stop. It's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. The last person I want to mention is Bruce Springsteen, In last September's Vanity Fair interview, Springsteen revealed lifelong fear that he would turn into his father, who had significant mental illness and even at the end of his life, paranoia. In fact, his entire family tree was riddled with mental illness. So he worked very hard to prevent his own depression from enveloping him. He he says he had to ignore what people thought or some belief that he should be able to get better on his own. He had to confront stigma. He says he did three main things. He got therapy. He was on medication. And perhaps most important, especially to our discussion today, he was very open to hearing from his wife that his darkness was descending once more. And I quote, Patty will observe a freight train bearing down, loaded with nitroglycerin and running quickly out of track, whereupon she gets me to the doctors and says, this man needs a pill. Now, I'm quoting from author David Camp's article in Vanity Fair. I want to make sure you understand that. Springsteen talks very openly about his chronic depression, which actually his wife was a little leery about in this article in Vanity Fair. He talks about his book, Born to Run. And I quote, One of the points I'm making in the book is that whoever you've been and wherever you've been, it never leaves you. I always picture it as a car. All yourselves are in it, and a new self can get in, but the old selves can't ever get out. The important thing is, 
Who's got their hands on the wheel at any given moment? This is a great, very Springsteen-esque metaphor. He makes the point that chronic depression can be managed, but it takes acceptance and persistence, and you cannot listen to the prejudice around you. You have to advocate for yourself. So let's talk a little bit about why we as a culture still hang on to prejudice against mental illness. Of course, it does not help that when we see murders or attacks occurring by mentally ill people, that we jump to the conclusion that all mental illness is dangerous. That's simply not true. Mental illness, just like physical illness, is on a spectrum. You can have a bad cold or you can have pneumonia. Mental illness is the same way. I believe why prejudice is so maintained in our society against mental illness is because of fear and mainly because of the chronicity of the illness. We as a people don't like to think that we don't have control. And when we see someone that we believe is out of control, we back off, we distance. I see it all the time with my patients. They'll go through something very, very difficult and be having a hard time. And rather than people maintaining contact, they disengage. They're around for a little while, but they disengage. We have to become more comfortable with ambiguity, with not knowing, with fear. If we did that as a culture, I think we could beat this prejudice against mental illness and understand it and accept it and work with it and work with people who have it. So what can you do about it? I loved one day when one of my guy patients came in, big, tall construction worker, and he told me that he had just come from a meeting with a friend of his at 6.30 in the morning over coffee. And I said, what'd y'all talk about? He said, we talked about our depression. I was floored and happily floored. Those kinds of conversations need to go on more and more. Even more recently, a patient of mine who had depression and, and a lot of anxiety wasn't talking about it with anyone. In fact, she isolated herself from her friends. And I recommended to her that she re-engage and talk about it to some people that she could trust. Well, lo and behold, she found out they also were going through many of the same things she was. She felt very reassured. So we can talk about what's going on with us, and when someone tries to talk to us about their own mental illness or their own mental health issues, we can listen without prejudice. It may scare us a little, but we can admit that fear and be supportive. We can also confront respectfully when we hear people committing prejudice against mental illness. We can stand up for those that may not be able at that current time to stand up for themselves. Now we're going to move on to a listener email. Hello, Dr. Margaret. I've been listening to your podcast, and I've really appreciated the insight you provided me. Since May 2016, I've been seeing a counselor. At the time, I told my parents that I was going to go, and they weren't supportive. I've continued to see the counselor, and through talking with him and my family doctor, I've started taking medication for depression and anxiety. I really feel that I should tell my family about what's going on, but I'm afraid to, and have tried a few times, but always backed out of it. In one of your podcasts, you mentioned bringing articles about depression and anxiety when you tell someone what you're going through to help them understand. I'm wondering if you could recommend some articles to me for when I am ready to tell my family. Thank you for the public work you do for mental health. And by the way, you're very welcome. (laughs) 
So I answer, I'm delighted that self-work has been helpful to you and that you've reached out. You've advocated for yourself, and despite your family's non-support, you sought help, and that is absolutely great. I hope the meds help you stabilize and that therapy is successful. I can think of several reasons for your parents' objections. I'm not sure how old you are, but obviously old enough to legally seek treatment on your own. But if you're a bit younger, like in your late teens, perhaps your parents are having trouble letting you be in charge of your own life. This can really happen, especially in meshed families. Secondly, what meshed families are, are families who believe that the family should be at the center of your life and that you shouldn't seek outside advice. I said, if either of these is the issue, either your age problem or the enmeshment issue, I'm not sure there are articles that will help. There are some books that if they would read them, that would be helpful, but they may not. Instead, you may respectfully but assertively need to create your own life and not necessarily please your parents. Third, of course, it could be that your parents are struggling with the idea that you have a mental illness. Not knowing the exact nature of your problems or what kind of anxiety or depression you have, I would suggest this. There are websites like The Mighty and Stigma Fighters where people with mental illness are writing about it openly. A woman named Jennifer Marshall also has a great website called This Is My Brave, which also features people's stories. Perhaps you could find a couple that would seem most like you, and that would be helpful to your family. There are more scholarly articles and books, but sometimes the words of people who are simply going through it can be very, very moving. If you want a more professional take on depression or anxiety, I like the work of Michael Yapko, that's Y-A-P-K-O, for depression, and Reed Wilson for anxiety. There's also Brene Brown's recent work, Daring Greatly, where she emphasizes the importance of revealing who you really are. And that certainly includes being open about whatever struggles you might have and letting go of any shame about it. Perhaps you could approach your parents with the idea that they have the opportunity to give you a gift. And that gift would be trying to see this from your perspective, not to be frightened about it. They may have questions about medications. Remember, the warnings will scare anyone off. But maybe they need to hear it more in your own voice and with the perspective that you have gained from your work with your therapist. Of course, you could always invite them to a session with your therapist and have him or her help you in trying to guide them to understanding more of what's going on with you. I hope that's helpful. And thanks for sharing your story with self-work. I want to thank you for joining me in this discussion of stigma. There are lots of ways to reach out to me. One of them is through my website, drmargaretrutherford.com, and I blog there weekly. You can always email me, as this listener did, at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I will answer you and may even feature your question here on SelfWork. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret. And I also have Pinterest and Instagram accounts, and it's pretty easy to find me. It's Dr. Margaret Rutherford there as well. I want to send a special shout out to two folks who actually gave me ratings and reviews last week. I really so appreciate it. I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but it's Gaudi Tukan and Oboban. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. So please, any of you who might also be so inclined, your ratings and reviews are important on iTunes so that self-work gets the attention of more and more listeners. And of course, subscribe. 
I'm getting out a podcast about every 10 days. So if you subscribe, that will come right to your phone or your iPad, whichever you prefer. Also, please share self-work with your friends. I know that I certainly listen to things that my friends send me say, you'd really like this. So if you can take a little time to share the link or just tell someone as you're having lunch, that would mean a lot. Again, thanks so much. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.